welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to this discussion on payments, digital and otherwise. Just because it's the summer holidays, it doesn't mean that the world of digital payments has ground to a halt. Indeed, quite the contrary. Things move on apace. And uh, even recently, we, we saw the launch of another CBDC, this time uh, in Jamaica. So to assess the state of the nation, have a, a, a peer into the looking glass and see where where we're heading. I'm delighted to introduce um, two practitioners, visionaries, thinkers about the, the digital payments industry. Um, on the one hand, I have, I'm pleased to welcome David Creer, who is head of blockchain and innovation at GFT, a leading uh, German headquartered technical services provider that's very active in the payments uh, world. Uh, and uh, Peter Clifford, a uh, man of many talents, currently director of CBDC and payments at Digital Asset. Um, and prior to that, he was uh, with the Fed and, uh, amongst other things, chief operating officer of the World Federation of Exchanges. Uh, so an awful lot of experience and expertise here, which I hope we're, they're going to uh, share with you. So I'm going to kick off by asking first David to say something about himself and, and, and GFT and uh, uh, to share with us some of his views about significant issues uh, that are currently on, on the table in payments. Then ask Peter to do the same and uh, explore uh, those issues and see where they lead us. So that's enough from me. I'm Phil Middleton, uh, chairman of the OMFIF Digital Monetary Institute, uh, but I'm now going to hand over to our experts. David, the floor is yours. Thank you, Phil. So maybe it's just a bit of background. I come from a um, innovation background, more on the technical side of things, but also on the business side of things. I see myself where I sit a lot of the time in the enterprise architecture um, area now, kind of bridging that gap between technology and, uh, and, and business. And GFT, and my time in GFT has been very much focused on financial services. So when I started with a GFT, I would say that 95% of our business was based around financial services. We, have, we work with pretty much all of the tier one banks um, in some way, shape or form. And we have obviously working with all of the other you know, large financial services institutions like exchanges or clearing houses or, or whatever. So we're very familiar with, um, with this, uh, with this type of ground and, you know, all of the issues that you have around payments and, and the traditional payments uh, systems. And one of our, our main focuses has been how to improve payments and how using technologies, not just DLT, but technologies in general can uh, improve the payments uh, landscape. So, we have been looking at this from a variety of different viewpoints, to be honest with you. So um, I, I've been very much more involved in the DLT space, but we've been looking at, for example, contactless pay, payments using QR. That was a few years ago. Now NFC payments, um, now to AR type payments where you can use, for example, your headset to be able to trigger a payment via, via that. So we're looking at a lot of different sides of things from the retail point of view and also from the capital markets point of view. And one of the things I think um, we do tend to focus on, though, from the DLT standpoint and from the 
from the blockchain uh, center of excellence is how to improve the processes around payments. So how can we make payments you know, go more quickly? How can we make them more efficient? How can we get rid of um, the flack around the payment system by reducing the amount of non-automated um, uh, processes? by reducing the amount of um, intermediaries that there are, if there are intermediaries that can be um, uh, removed, um, and and by having an extra level of security so that um, we have less fraud via the payment service as well. So it's harder to be able to have a man in a middle, middle attack. And it's quite interesting, actually, I think, to find that with a lot of the um, CBDCs um, and the, a lot of the, I would say, the, the, the blockchain or digital payment stuff that we've been doing with DLT has been really focused on how to be able to create uh, a more secure and faster, more efficient um, payment service. So that's that's where I say it can can definitely be improved. Before I pass to Peter, actually, can I? Uh, you, you're an expert technologist, clearly. There is a school of thought that says that blockchain DLT are simply technologies looking for a problem to solve and that actually the global payment system is okay. Clearly it can be RTGS and so forth can be improved, but um, actually this is, uh, this can be done incrementally using existing technology. What would you say to that? So, so the global payment system that we have at the moment, so be that Swift or, or RTGS um, does, does, does work. And obviously it has, it's, uh, it's, it's benefits and it can, it can be improved. But the advantages that you can get to by using blockchain in, in, in relation to secure automation um, and being able to re- remove um, unnecessary steps of validation, which are currently being done by manual steps and, 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 and basically uh, participants um, that are that are sitting in um, certain, let's say, financial services institutions are very expensive. So. In, in, in the workflow, maybe if we take a, I don't know, a traditional payments workflow, you might have a couple of steps in there where you, you actually have to have a, somebody who looks through the um, rules and regulations to see whether this payment um, can be can, can be taken, you know, can be approved or not. And when you are especially looking at something like cross-border payments, um, they can get quite complicated because you're talking about two different jurisdictions as well. And the approval process um, can be much more easily monitored and approved and automated uh, if you move to if you move to a, a system like DLT. So the current payment system as it is at the moment does work, but it can be made better. And one of the one of the ways of potentially making it better is by using a DLT system, which is more secure um, and and better in terms of the automa- automation. Thank you for that. Uh, can I pass? Uh... To Peter, tell, tell us a little about what, what, what you and Digital Asset are up to and what you think some of the key issues are, please. Happy to, uh, happy to do that, Philip, and thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've uh, always enjoyed listening to the podcasts you've done, learned a lot from your previous guests. And I hope today's, uh, today's conversation is, is, is helpful as well. Uh, I joined a Digital Asset a, a, about a month ago and was very excited to join them for reasons that we'll get into in a moment. But just to pick up on the conversation so far, I think a lot of people and observers, and and you've probably noticed as well, are honing in on these things like cross-border payments and remittances. Because while they're efficient uh, statistically and and sort of globally, uh, in certain cases, they're not uh, all that uh, efficient. And while remittance payments can be 
you know, in the 5 to 7 percent range of the total amount transferred. In some cases, it can be 10 or 20 percent or, or higher. Uh, and these are very small transfers, first of all, um, for poorer parts of populations. So if you're talking about financial inclusion, this is something that we could really work on quite easily. If you're looking at the traditional uh, transfer network, it's like a pile of spaghetti. It goes backwards and forwards. It goes through different central banks. Sometimes they're in different uh, time zones, so you have to wait till the next day before you hear back from them. There's a lot of uncertainty whether, the, whether this particular leg went through or not. And then every step in the compliance uh, process is duplicated at every step it goes through. So obviously, and to, to agree with what David was saying, uh, if we cut down those steps or if we can automate the, uh, the processes, then we can drive these costs down. And that can be quite significant to um, several uh, areas, several jurisdictions where remittances are, you know, a very important part of their GDP or where they're just large amounts. So, you know, uh, places like um, the Arab Emirates, uh, send quite a lot of remittances to countries like India and, and Pakistan. Um, so these kinds of places, I think, are are just um, use cases that are crying out for for some some work uh, sort of right away. I mean, just to, to interrupt slightly, OMFIF um, mm-hmm. uh, has done quite a bit of work on on remittances, particularly retail, cross border migrant worker remittances, and incidentally, mm-hmm. the largest single cross border flow of migrant worker remittances in the world is, as you probably know, from the United States to Mexico. And if okay. you talk to financial institutions and, and, and uh, remittance firms, and you say, "Why are you charging so much? Why are you charging seven to?" 12% on a transaction for, for, for poor people, they will tend to say to you, oh, well, the reason we do it is because, of course, the regulators give us all these expensive, complicated, anti-money laundering, uh, know thy customer, uh, customer due diligence uh, compliance processes to go to. Uh, and it's that that causes the cost. It's not because we're profiteering or because we're inefficient. Mm-hmm. And they're right that there are a lot of uh, uh, checks that have to be done, and rightly so, but then there's a lot of uh, repetition. So the exact same thing has to be done several times. And that's where using blockchains or DLTs or uh, central bank digital currency can really uh, knock down the number of participants in the transaction and also make it very easy to um, work on questions like privacy through smart contracts so that people are only getting the information that they need to do to complete the transaction. So I think that's like a very hopeful area and could go perhaps much quicker. And then you get into in major um, economies where CBDC is going to have to integrate into <clears throat> very sophisticated capital markets and issuance of debt in these countries. And those are probably longer. If you're talking about the European Union of the United States, um, you know, the, there's a lot to lose if something goes wrong there. If you're talking about remittances, it's, it's, there are some really uh, promising uh, techniques that we could do very quickly and, and solve some of these problems, which are, you know, if you're looking at, uh, you know, Economic problems eventually bleed over into social problems. If you're looking at what's going on in Tunisia at the moment as well, you know, it's it's a question of being able to respond to economic issues or Lebanon at the moment, these hyperinflation areas. So those for the case studies, I think there are lots of them. There are there are so many. And that's why I was excited to join Digital Asset. People who have heard of Digital Asset 
probably know it for the work that it's done at the Australian Securities Exchange, where they're taking all the post-trade activities. Uh, I think the ASX director recently said it's about $3 trillion worth of assets being moved into the digital world. So these large projects, uh, and we're looking to look, use some of that experience and bring it into, uh, you know, realms of particular uh, use in these different uh, you know, solutions not only across border and not only CBDC, but very much stable coins are technically very similar to that, but very different from a, a legal and accounting uh, basis. And maybe, maybe I could just add as well. I think that it's, it's important to remember that um, distributed ledger and blockchain, a lot of the time it's about collaboration and the creation of networks. Um, and the, the, the main benefit from the collaboration and the creation of the network is to be able to reduce the, um, the, the friction that you have in these types of, in these types of workflows. So if you have, for example, a cross, you know, a cross-border remittance and you do need to have this validation against either a governmental agency or, or, or a third party, the ideal situation is that obviously they would be part of this network. You'd bring them into this network and the automation of the validation that they can do on their side is part of the network, it's part of the stream. And therefore, every transaction that goes through them is automated and it costs less because it's not um, it's not a separate entity that you have to have somebody who's maintaining and validating and so on and so forth. So we've, we've seen this in other areas, for example, in, in insurance, where you have insurance like underwriters and insurance risk and that's analyzers who have kind of come in and decided to create networks based on the fact that they can uh, work with insurers and they can provide risk analysis um, and then the insurers are part of this network as well. Why not do this as well for cross-border payments? Uh, Why not be able to create this kind of collaborative um, scenario for cross-border payments whereby the regulators are working directly with the the payment companies in, in 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 a distributed ledger uh, workflow as well. Um, that's That will be more efficient, and, that, and that's the way that we should be thinking in the future. And let's explore that a little more, because the recent um, OMF DMI symposium, the three key words that came out in conclusion for participants were, one, cooperation, i.e. between private sector networks and the private sector and the public sector. It was standardization in terms of technical standards around the globe so that we're all using VHS or Betamax, but not both. Um, uh, And finally, um, interoperability that uh, both of regulations and technologies, so it all gets seamless. Um, Of course, the problem comes when you say, okay, well, which technology standard should we use? The answer always tends to be, well, use mine. Uh, um, so, Peter, would you like to, to, to pick up on that theme there? Is this idea of a you know, global interoperable standard consistently regulated piece for digital uh, a fantasy or, or can we get there? Well, I think that digital assets certainly is is aiming at that uh, specifically. So it works with a number of different ledgers and a number of different protocols, and that's the way that it's been based. And so the the idea there, and, and David can probably get into the technical specifications better than I on this, uh, but the idea there is that you can write a program that can work with these different ledgers and protocols and be able to complete the transactions uh, without having to duplicate a lot of the work 
or to lock yourself into one sort of protocol if it was the Betamax, uh, because these are still early days. And, and it could be that as uh, new applications come online, people need different, um, you know, functionality. And if you were in one sort of area or one sort of tokenization uh, uh, process, you might get locked in or you might have to go back and redo all this work. So the concept that the engineers at Digital Asset are working is to be like a layer that can use all of these different protocols and then synthesize it into something that can be used uh, across different networks and even into legacy systems, which are a little bit out of fashion, but, um, you know, still have, I think, $3 trillion of of daily transactions go through mainframe computers. So trying to tie that all together is going to be um, very important and very important to do it in a, in a way that's that's not too expensive either uh, for, for that solution. So, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, very much the name of the game. I'm not surprised that those would be the conclusions. Um, those are the things that we're aiming at and trying to to solve for. And you, Peter, you talked about... Um Privacy being be fairly important. I would find there's a, a little bit of uh, a Schrodinger's cat element here. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the people who are most interested in many countries in CBDC or digital payments are the tax authorities and the police, mm-hmm. uh, closely followed by the central banks. Um, and yet... Many private sector um, developers of digital currency are saying we want the digital currency to replicate cash as far as possible, physical cash. And the, one of the main features it ought to replicate is bearer anonymity uh, and, and clearly atomic transaction as well. Um, mm-hmm. How can those two coexist? So it's it's a. A balancing point, it's, it's a question of uh, degree on, in all of these things. And I think as you're looking at something like central bank digital currency, the idea that it could be decentralized and yet the central bank is, is kind of one of the first sort of uh, um, challenges that you come across. So obviously we are dealing with something that's going to be touching, you know, the idea is ubiquitous use of a currency across a population. And so it has to be have those elements uh, that meet, you know, the regulation. Because, I mean, under these those regulations are social goods that we want to have. We don't want money laundering. We don't want, uh, you know, other trafficking going on in the money. And I think to a certain extent, we can be even more successful with CBDC than we are with notes and coins that are, you know, trillions of dollars of those floating around not being checked. The point is, though, with privacy, the way we're using it through smart contracts and through um, distributed ledger networks is that parts of that information can be kept only for the parts that need to see it. So the reporting as to uh, who is conducting an operation can go to the bank or the institution that needs to see it. Uh, a tax authority or other uh, groups could be getting mated metadata and seeing how much transactions were going through. And that's going to be very important if you're trying to uh, fulfill monetary objectives. You want to know how much money is being actually produced, what the flows are, and that sort of information. And so you're able to uh, provide this information on a sort of need-to-know basis or with the uh, consent of the people who are uh, involved in these transactions. And then, and then uh, that would be the main basis of it. Now, another part of it uh, is 
the cash-like bearer instrument. And so there are some solutions to that, uh, especially if you're looking at offline solutions where if you're providing uh, CBDC in islands that have, you know, huge tropical storms that knock out the electricity, you want to be able to have some sort of money as well. And that's a little bit of a, a trickier situation because, you know, what we're really looking at is the most efficient, the most fastest way to make payments, atomic payments across a ledger where it's just an entry at one point and a, a credit at another. But we do also have to have this robustness of the system that if things go down, people can still get cash and 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 work it that way. So those are all balances that have to be done. And I think every jurisdiction is going to have a different case need to a certain extent and is going to have different requirements. And if we can build them in without having to change the system every time, that, that just makes it, um, you know, a better system overall. Overall. How important do you think privacy is, David? I mean, just imagine in a future Internet of Things environment, everything's in here. Uh, nicely joined up and I take my electric car to the electric filling station and join it up, join it up to a, an electricity generator with a pump and, uh, the chip in my car talks to the chip in the pump and exchanges information about the amount I've, I've taken and, uh, and pays. Does the regulator have to have full sight of that? Uh, is that uh, an atomic anonymous transaction? And how do the authorities assure themselves, therefore, that I'm, I'm not using this as a significant, uh, uh, very subtle form of money laundering? If, if we look at China as the, as the future of not, not just digital payments, but digital life in general, as, 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 as is kind of, you know, they do seem to be leading the way in, in terms of, um, how, you know, social networks and, um, digital payments, digital banking, a lot of different technological aspects. They seem to be very much leading the way in, in, in their own way. And it's, it's different to, to how it is in, in Europe and it's different to how it is in the States, obviously. But if you look at them as, as how the, the direction of travel potentially for, um, digital transactions, what you're seeing actually is this interconnectedness. And this is what this is what you get when you have um, a smart city infrastructure whereby everything that you are doing is based around either a digital wallet or um, your digital identity. And that digital identity uh, has a um, has a has a trace to it. So if, uh, as you said, you wanted to fill up your car in a in, in, in a gas station and it wasn't your regular gas station, would you want? Um, everybody to know that you were in a gas station that was 50 miles north of where you normally fill up your car. What does that mean about about you, right? Um, I think that this will very much come down to um, regional regulation. I think that the data will be available for the regional regulators. So we will have personal identities, which will be uh, our identities that will be available for data that are used for payments um, and are used for, for example, our IOTs. Um, status in, 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 in uh, the data that's processed via, uh, via the cloud, for example. But that will be masked potentially, um, depending on the state that you're in at this point in time. And I would imagine that the kind of transactions that will be masked and anonymized would be the kind of transactions that we're talking about now. So are you filling up your, your, your car in a petrol pump? Uh, that's probably not going to be tracked. You're probably not going to have that kind of information because 
that to you know a regulator is not is not hugely important whereas if you are making a lot of i don't know internal flights for example and you're doing a lot of internal flights and i don't know you're buying a lot of extremely expensive items um maybe that would be something that would be of interest to the regulator because it means that you're changing the way that you're you're you're, you're working potentially you are having some kind of activity which is slightly out of uh, sync with your normal life so i think it will kind of It'll depend on the activities you're doing. It'll depend on the state that you're in. I think anonymity is is definitely required, even in um, the the few you know this future of smart cities and and uh, and traceable transactions. So so yeah, I think I think we will have some kind of state about anonymity, but it'll probably be uh, you know levels of anonymity, and I don't think that everything will be 100% anonymous in the way that it it kind of is now in the in the non-digital world. Because we we seem to be emerging into a very interesting world. What one is, you know, in Europe, we have a rule book, MICA, and very little in the way of a, uh, a digital industry, to, to be frank. In the United States, we have what one influential uh, U.S. commentator has called the Wild West. Uh, multiple regulators, nobody, no, nobody in charge, and yet a very thriving uh, digital cryptocurrency business, um, which would seem to suggest that the the the, the, the way to go is re- relax the rules. Peter, how do you, how, as, as a former Fed regulator, how, how how do you think the American authorities are looking at this? Well, there's. It's, you know, changing every day, um, Philip, and, and as you know, there's quite a lot of, uh, legislation and regulation being looked at at the, at the moment. Uh, to go back to David's point, I think you're going to find, uh, that different jurisdictions have very different, uh, ways that they're going to look at central bank digital currency. And so, um, already in conversations that we've had on Capitol Hill and, and with uh, regulators, um, there is concern about giving too much power to the central banks and too much power of having a sort of big brother uh, oversight into people's lives. So people are concerned in the United States about that balance. And I think as a result, when the CBDC comes out, and I think it's a question of when, not if, uh, the, the Fed has a CBDC. They'll be taking that into consideration. Um, and that's leaving a lot of room, though, for the moment for stable coins and for private companies to just get on with it and, and do, uh, uh, you know, s- implement solutions at the corporate level or between corporations and their clients or between financial institutions and their investors. And, and, and yet a year ago, when OMFIF held a, a discussion with the American regulators on CBDC, you could pretty much fit the enthusiasts for CBDC into, into a telephone box. Uh, and now, of course, we've got Project Hamilton sponsored by the Fed, half, half a dozen studies looking at technology. A year ago, people, American colleagues were reassuring me that, you know, the, the physical dollar was a uh, almost akin to a First Amendment right, and no American would ever countenance handing over power to Feds to interfere with life and liberty to that extent. And, that, and now we're seeing quite a, a lot of um, members of Congress saying, "Well, we've got to have one of these pretty quickly, otherwise we're all going to be spending ECNY in Alabama." So, where do you, where, where do you see it going? 
So I wouldn't want to make a prediction if the question is to me because or give a time deadline on that. We are hearing a lot of questions about, you know, competition between countries. And I don't think that's really that pertinent because people aren't going to change currencies like they're going to change banks. It just doesn't work that way. But I think you'll find that the countries that are doing the experiments now and who are out and leading that are going to have valuable information. And so they're going to learn a lot and develop a lot. I know the Fed has been working on this for a long time. And there are reports and papers that should be coming out very soon, which will give us an indication of where they're leaning on this. So I think that's the major thing. I think, you know, announcements like Facebook or some of the Chinese developments whip up a lot of enthusiasm. But at the end of the day, I think it's really focusing on solutions that are going to matter. It's going to be focusing on payment providers who find cheaper and more effective ways of using the elements of both cryptocurrency and CBDC into traditional payment forms that are going to be the, you know, leading edge, I think, of this going forward. Maybe if I could opine on this a little bit. I think that in general, the success of CBDCs will be off the back of the success of the pilots. So the success of CBDCs globally and the adoption more generally, be it in America or be it in the UK or in Europe or whatever, will be off the back of the success of the ECNY and also stable coins as well. So when slash if Libra, USDC, which have a stable coin, you know, becomes an extremely popular form of payment because of the advantages in, you know, times of settlement and fast cash and all of that, all of that kind of stuff, then that will really kind of, you know, put a lot of pressure on the government to speed up their progress to get out of, I would say, the studies on this and into pilot mode and into experimenting with, you know, real world subjects rather than just doing a lot of different studies, which is kind of which is what we've seen over the last few years. We've had a few countries being quite brave and gone out there and said, yes, I'm going to do a pilot. I'm going to learn from the pilot. But then I said the majority of developed world's economies have been doing studies around this for a number of years, you know, some of them for five, 10 years as well. So I think it really does depend on the success of the major stable coins and the ECNY specifically as well. Yeah, there's a terrible conundrum at the heart of CBDCs, which is, I think, that central banks and governments are rapidly concluding that issuing a dependable fiat currency is a necessary part of sovereign competence. And that if the state doesn't do it, they will be replaced by the private sector and private sector stable coins, which may or may not be desirable. However, there isn't very much consumer demand for CBDC. I mean, if one moves outside our sort of circles where we seem to think it's terribly enjoyable and interesting to talk about CBDCs and digital currencies and we go and talk to real people, they say, well, why do you want one of these things? We've already got digital payment instruments that work perfectly well. And there does seem to be this 
this element that the authorities are going to have to address, which is persuading a very reluctant populace that these these things are worth having. Well, I think it's it's could be similar to you know the, where Apple was, uh, you know, when they were introducing their products. Uh, new products and saying people won't know until they see it, but they, they actually wanted it. And if we look at remittances and just take it from that point of view, you know, the remittance program could be much more effective if, for instance, uh, you're moving money from one country. Oftentimes, these will be between uh, two or three countries where there's a population that is related to the host country, and they will be sending money there in small amounts. If the money were actually just pooled in that country, in a bank account for uh, a central bank that is on the receiving end. That central bank then can issue remittances electronically on debit cards, on telephones, or whatever. And all that technology works. Um, And the actual physical currency wouldn't have to move. So, for instance, if you were looking at Tonga, which is the country that has the highest uh, remittances per GDP, Money coming from Australia could actually stay in Australia in the bank account for the Central Bank of Tonga. Tonga can just basically issue electronic receipts for it to the population. And that way you'd be saving probably 10 to 15 percent. So that's what they're going to appreciate is that they're getting more money, not that in this the technology underneath it probably will not even need to be explained. It will just be the cheaper and most logical way to do this. Uh, my, my question is, I'm, I, I'm a Tongan working in, in Australia. I'm sending remittances home to my family in Tonga, mm-hmm. which are remitted via the via, via a bulk system. If the Tongan Central Bank is crediting my grandma, is, mm-hmm. she, being, is she being credited in local Tongan currency or oh, yeah. in Aussie, Aussie dollars? Well, actually, in the Tongan situation, it would probably be better to do it in Paonga because it's a very stable currency. So basically... The Australian dollar stays in Australia, credited to the bank, which then can electronically, having figured out the FX situation there, which they do quite well at the moment, makes the credit. But you raise an interesting point, because if the same situation were happening in a hyperinflationary country, such as Lebanon or Argentina, that central bank could issue its uh, Lebanese pound or uh, Argentinian currency, denominated in that currency, but if they wanted to, they could actually base it off of the values, because if we're working on an account-based system, so we're not issuing tokens, but it's an account that you have, right, um, that could fluctuate, they could actually use the balance held in reserve currencies to change the, the amount that's going to be credited, meaning which, if you're in the UK and you send money to Lebanon, If the person uses it right away, it's exchanged or an atomic swap. If he's getting it on a debit card and he keeps it for a while, the government in Lebanon, if they agreed to this, could say, well, we'll keep that in pounds or euros in our account. And that the account locally, because inflation is such a big issue, will be adjusted. So if inflation continues to be a problem and the currency depreciates, that card is actually carrying a little bit more money. And, and you could work on something like that but because the ledger, the math behind this is pretty simple and the technology is not at all simple, but it's the same technology whether you use it one way or another. So I think those are, are, you know, pretty straightforward ways that you could get around the local situation and every situation is going to be a little different.
Yeah, I mean, a lot, a, a lot of concern has been ex- expressed that uh, the currencies of smaller countries will be undermined by global CBDC, um, even to a greater extent than they are currently by, 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 by physical cash. Do you have some concluding thoughts on this debate? So I think one of the one of so so the big you know the big question about you know, for, for the consumer what 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 are the benefits of this I think that that is a really you know that's that's the elephant in the room in in, in a weird way I think one of the things is it's going to be more efficient it's going to be it's going to be quicker um, it's going to be cheaper and then the other thing is about uh, programmable money so um, I think that we're going to see in the future um, a lot of different ways of, of programming especially in the wholesale space. Um, of, of programming a CBDC money. And it's going to make the uh, creation of smart contracts for um, wholesale actions and payments a lot easier um, than we have at the moment. So at the moment, we've got a lot of, well, you know, cash and chain payment systems that we build out um, for banks and for um, for clients of banks. Um, and a lot of the time when we're doing that, we obviously are kind of, you know, building them out for a particular bank. Creating a wholesale CBDC is going to be able to tap into that wholesale CBDC to be able to automate the the payments for uh, for their clients. So especially from from a business point of view, the the advantage of, of programmable money between businesses based on the rules of the needs of the businesses is going to be quite interesting. I think we're probably going to see quite um, a lot of interesting experimentation there. Um, that, that will probably kind of drive adoption of the whole, of the whole, on the wholesale CBDC. It's on, on, and, and potentially on the reg, on, on the retail CBDC. I know that in China they've been doing some experimentation there on, on, I think they've done about 50 different use cases so far. The other side of that, the flip side of that is that the regulators find, or at least according to analysts, the, the, the regulators find that whole side of, okay, how do we pro, you know, programmable money? How do we create uh, regulations and how do we create laws around programmable money that needs to be flexible enough to be able to give people the workflows that they want to be able to do, but also retain um, a certain control over what can be done and what can't be done as well? So how can you kind of, you know, leave it open, but also kind of close it down so that it's not um, available to be abused? So it's, uh, I think I think that's really the future. I think that's kind of like a catching point, definitely uh, for uh on, on the wholesale side and hopefully for the retail side. So I'm, I'm hoping that we'll see a lot of really good innovation around 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 that side of things. And, and presumably that regulation could look like currently what we see with, for example, swaps contracts, yeah. which, are, which are standardized instruments that the regulators, the lawyers can all agree on and and supervise, which presumably can be rendered in digital form and, and, and programmed to act. Although, uh, I'm, I'm going to pass over to the, the former COO of the World Federation of Exchanges to tell me whether whether that makes makes any sense or not. Peter, closing remarks. Yes, I, th- I think that um, the regulatory side of it can be can be streamlined, can be standardized to a large extent. Um, the cases and the reasons and the motivations that countries will have to do this and to adopt this, I think, are all going to be a little bit different. And so we can have these standards, but we'll have to adjust every time to the user case and, and to what problem we're trying to solve to keep it something that is really focused on uh, impacts that are being felt by businesses and people and, and that this technology sort of melts into the background of it, uh, whether we're using uh, blockchains or, or other kinds of uh, distributed ledgers. 
so that's going to be uh, one of the ways that I see this, this moving forward. And the other part of the regulation is between kind of stable coins and CBDCs. I think that CBDCs, or I know that, have a number of regulatory advantages that stable coins don't have in terms of accounting, in terms of legal uh, areas. And that's why I think it's really important that countries and central banks embrace this and run these pilots. Because if I had a choice between a stable coin and a CBDC, I would take a CBDC uh, every day. You have much less credit concerns. Uh, and, and so there, it can be a really good way to show um, or to base experimentations off of that once you see how a government uh, leans on these questions. So hopefully that's going to be the future of that, uh, of, you know, the next, the coming years. And we'll see more of these successful pilots being rolled out. So you're in effect, you see CBDC crowding out stable coins. Well, I think stable coins have a number of uh, really exciting things that can be done. Uh, David sort of uh, related to that as well, um, you know, for treasury management within side banks or within side global groups. You know, it can be a kind of utility coin, which helps treasury track money and payments. And, and so those things don't really need to have the same level of scrutiny if it's within a corporation or in a company that uh, you would have if you were making a security issuance to the general public. So I think stable coins have, you know, many other different uses that we can have. In terms of um, Tether versus a U.S. dollar stable coin, um, Fed stable coin, I would, I would take the Fed one if I had the choice. Uh, maybe, maybe just one, one more closing remark. I think we are a little bit away. And I, I think that, I think that for the medium term, if not for the long term, we will have stable coins because not, not all of, you know, we're not going to get a CBDC for every currency in the world, not for a long time. So for the areas where we don't have a CBDC for the currency, there are still going to be users that will want to use stable coins. And that's one of the reasons that we think that the interoperability between stable coins and CBDCs for the medium term uh, and possibly for the long term, depending on how things evolve, um, is actually really important. And we're, we're focusing a lot of our developments on, on, on that at this point in time, um, how these two things can, uh, can really live together in, in, in the payments um, landscape. Gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. I take four big conclusions out of this fascinating conversation. The first is that we're heading for a multiple digital payment instrument world. Uh, the second is that in order for that to function properly, it's going to have to be uh, interoperable. The third is that it's pointless doing it if they simply replicate today's cash. These instruments are going to have to be programmable and they're going to have to do smart things. And the fourth and final thing is that all of this has got to operate within a wrapper of uh, consistent, accurate regulation on, on, on a global basis. Um, all of which we should be able to uh, achieve over the weekend and get going on Monday. So um, with many thanks for a great deal of insight and, and entertainment, which I hope we shall repeat. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast. 